0: Eight or ten rounds missed us. You talk about maintaining your composure in a, a stressful situation. Uh, none of us jumped off the roof. You know, we kind of made our way back to the ladder and crawled down. But that that whole event lasted about 13 hours. It ended in a gunfight, a second gunfight with the guy, and he didn't survive. But in the aftermath of that, a lot of things happened. A lot of a lot of things happened where, due to people's schedules and due to people's different job assignments and, and, and roles in the organization, the three of us were just kind of left no man's Land, but no one said
1: hey are you okay welcome to innovation and leadership where i interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers elite special operations soldiers startup ceos who sold their companies for billions of dollars pro athletes hollywood filmmakers really as many different kinds of experts as i can the whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate thanks for listening and i hope you enjoyed today's show Today on the show, I've got my friend Chris Nelson. He's a lawyer, police officer, former SWAT member, writer, skydiver—I don't know—big list. Chris, what did I miss there?
0: <laughs> yeah, you kind of got the wave tops there. We do anything that involves handlebars and adrenaline. We're all about it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, well, I want to talk about your time in SWAT specifically. Supporting folks who are countering child trafficking and child exploitation. Can you talk about any of your experience there?
0: Yeah, this is something I think you and I talked about before offline and some of the operations that we do up here, which aren't unique to this area, but I think we've had a a pretty high level of success. And, you know, my my department, is fortunate; we have some very competent detectives who work in that space. And we've, you know, run some in-house operations and we run some kind of jurisdictional, cross-jurisdictional operations where we you know, any number of things. Um, I actually shared office space with a buddy of mine who kind of in his spare police time, he, would, he, he created fake, fake profiles you know, on various trafficking websites. And uh, we, we would sit there and his laptop would just ping relentlessly with hits from these guys that are soliciting what they think is an underage girl you know, for, for, for sex. And I ran, we ran the tactical side of that, and so he was both a SWAT guy and this detective. So he would work up these cases where he would he would draw these people in, you know, with various offers of services, and and we'd meet up with them and take them down and um, do that. So I got to see kind of at a very you know granular level from the you know sharing an office space with the guy, but I also worked on them from a much more macro level where through these elaborate operations, we'll, we'll you know take the, the whole wing of a hotel and we'll you know spend a week. Online soliciting offers from people who want to, you know, engage in, in sex with underage, with the, what they think is an underage person, and then we spend lots of time working up profiles on these people, gathering intelligence on the intelligence on these people, and then eventually when they show up, you know, we, we, we arrest them. And um, since I my time on SWAT, I've been probably involved in maybe a dozen of those like big, big scale operations, and kind of seen them from a lot of different angles, but yeah, we've had some, some pretty good success with that up
1: here. Well, we we appreciate the work that you guys do and, and all of your generous time volunteering, giving us advice at the charity at Child Rescue. What do you feel like are the most tense moments there during those arrests?
0: It, th- for that particular mission set? Yeah. Yeah. Y- people are so... And you can kind of tell, and you can kind of tell just from the way that the communications transpire whether they have experience in this in this realm. And some people just show up without any kind of you know counterintelligence or um, you know any any kind of measures to kind of protect themselves. They just show up like expecting to to meet a young girl at a hotel or to meet a young girl like in the you know parking lot of a McDonald's or something. The other ones though that, that they're very very savvy, kind of wily. They'll they might they'll give a different description of a car um, and they'll drive around the parking lot and the car they actually arrive in, or they'll park across the street or they'll want the person to come down out of the room. All these do different kinds of things. And those are the ones that kind of know the score and you kind of have to be a little bit cautious with them because you're talking about in that criminal space, it's people that are very, very, they have dual lives. You know, like I deal with people, like drug dealers, for example, mid or low level drug dealers, when you meet them, you wouldn't be surprised that they were a drug dealer, right? Um, or people who commit, you know, violent crimes, you know, gang members, things like that. That's, that's part of who their, their public persona is. With sex offenders, it's much different because they often live dual lives. It's very, very secretive. It's very, very, you know, kind of underground behavior. And it's something that they, they go to the great lengths to to hide from people around them. So outing them... Is a big big deal for them. It's a big event, and you don't know how people are going to respond. Usually, they just are emotionally overwhelmed. They're they're devastated emotionally that this is finally coming to light. But some people dig in and they want to fight or run or take other aggressive measures. And at that moment when they show up, and you know, and, and you get the takedown, takedown, takedown call where you have to actually go grab them and put hands on them like the moments leading up to that can be pretty tense because you just don't know how it's going to go. And you all, as as a, as a tactical guy, you only have limited control over what that person is going to do. Right. I mean, they're a decision maker. And so based on what they do, you know, it can drive the event in, in any number of ways.
1: Yeah. You know, my next question is, is somewhat related, but maybe a little wider when you think about mastering the skills to make that situation safer, or mastering any of the skills, whether it's becoming a lawyer or, or these other skydiving, all these hobbies you have. What are some of the principles that you feel like have helped you achieve mastery faster in these different realms in your life?
0: I think, and this is something that I've talked with about a lot, is that the, the quickest path, I think, to change the world, I read this somewhere, is to change yourself, right? Is to look at yourself and and knowing yourself. Spending a lot of time getting to know yourself, I think, is a first principle, and that translates into anything, into your relationships, into navigating scary situations, job interviews, all that stuff. The better you know yourself, the better you are going to be able to navigate situations. You know, so that's one of the big ones, and that's much easier said than done. And you know, that can be a very painful process getting to know oneself, especially you know, different paths that we. have navigated in life. My, my path has definitely been challenging from, from my youth. But knowing yourself first and foremost, I think, is one of the most important skills you can have.
1: What does that look like for you?
0: Man, like all the ugly parts. You know, like all the mistakes. I like, like really looking at the at the times when you fell short and really looking at those and mining those for opportunities to learn. And uh, that's something that I practice a lot with my kids and say, listen, you guys are going to mess up and, it's a, and that's fine. But that's an opportunity for you to really look at that mistake or look at that outcome that you didn't want and mine that for lessons, mine that for knowledge. And that was a principle that I used to train SWAT guys for years too. I said, Hey, listen, I expect you to make mistakes when you show up on day one because you're not a pro, you don't know what you're doing yet. And I don't expect you to make the same mistake 10 times in a row because I expect you to learn from it. But when you, when you have errors, Use those opportunities to grow and learn. Because some of the most, I don't know, you may agree, some of those profound lessons you've had are some of those painful experiences you probably had in life. Yeah. If you look at them, you know. You
1: know, I'm interested in what that process of self-examination looks like for you. Do you go somewhere quiet? Does it happen? Does it just come to you when you're driving? What, what is that process like?
0: Oh, man. Fragmented, chaotic, messy. You know, I don't know if I, I, you have time for a quick story. I'll share a story with you. This is a SWAT operation and I was involved in, um, and it was a pretty, a pretty nasty situation where ultimately we ended up on the roof of a building where a guy had broken into a, a third party residence. He broke into someone's home and we, they caught him there. And it just happened to be the homeowner was an avid gun collector. And so he had armed himself while he was in the house. We tried everything to get him out. We filled the house with chemicals, you know, in police dogs, technology, all worked the process, and the, and eventually we found out that he was in the, the top level of the, uh, the residence up in the crawl space. So we go up on the roof because it's the only way of introducing chemicals into the roof through the, the roof vent. And it wasn't a very it wasn't the, the best plan, but it was the only plan that we had. So we end up on the roof and in hindsight, predictably he started shooting us, at us through the roof. And he probably shot eight or ten rounds, missed us. You talk about maintaining your composure in a stressful situation. Uh, none of us jumped off the roof. You know, we kind of made our way back to the ladder and crawled down. But that la- that whole event lasted about 13 hours. It ended in a gunfight, a second gunfight with the guy, and he didn't survive. But in the aftermath of that, a lot of things happened. A lot of, a lot of things happened where due to people's schedules and due to people's different job assignments and, and, and roles in the organization, the three of us were just kind of left in this no man's land. But no one said, hey, are you okay? You guys not need anything. I'm glad you weren't killed. Like people just kind of let it roll. And I ended up meeting with the, the chief of police at my my uh, department. And this is funny because this came up my, my my promotion my promotional exam where they asked if you'd ever given a coworker advice. And I, this was the one. And I sat down with the chief and I said, I understand that you're the you're the boss. You know, several layers above me. I'm under no illusions. You know, to, to our relative importance in the organization. But I will tell you, this is a man to another man that there is there is no cost in asking are you okay there is no cost in asking do you need anything how are you how's your family that's that's a cost free you know process there's only an upside to it and i kind of gave him every opportunity to say i'm sorry you're right and he responded with like actually he looked at me and said that's fair and just left it at that and i spent about a year trying to reconcile like my place in the organization with you know, thinking this place doesn't care about me. They don't care about my life, you know. And I knew that wasn't true because they treated me differently, but that was, the, that was the lasting impression of that event. And, I, and, and, then, and my wife eventually said, you either have to reconcile this or leave because it's, you're not pleasant to be around. And this was about a year that this stuck with me. And, I got, and I, so I, I started thinking about this and I thought, like we talked about some of the most important lessons I've ever learned are from the hardest times in life. And I just had this bulb moment when I, when I thought, oh, like, this is one of those. Like, this is a hard time. This is the one you're supposed to look at and, and examine it for lessons. But you can do it right now. You don't have to wait 10 years for a, a moment of maturity where you can look back on it. We can do that right now. And so then I, I, I went through this transformation of, of being very bitter and very upset and very kind of disillusioned to, like, to, to one of gratitude. Being like, thank you for this opportunity, for showing me this lesson, because... I get to examine it right now in the moment and for, and nothing else I get to take away from this that when I have subordinates or in a similar situation, I will know to treat them differently than you treated me. So thank you for that. So, but that was a very painful process. It involved a lot of emotional energy, a lot of insight, a lot of spousal, but it can be ugly. It can be ugly. It can be very emotionally expensive depending on the the nature of the event, you know?
1: You know, it's interesting, you know, we have a lot of entrepreneurs and investment fund managers that listen to the show, Right. And we're not getting in gunfights, but you think about that, the lesson of that emotional connection, right? And you think like, look at the potential years of service that department loses from you if they don't, if they don't win the, the war of connection of you actually feeling like they care about your life, right? Like, it sounds so funny, tough stuff, you know, tough SWAT guys, and it's the words that matter, but it does. You know? And like you think about whether we're trying to recruit staff, we're trying to recruit investors, we're trying to recruit customers. Like being in charge is a recruitment job. And recruitment is an ongoing process. You know what I mean? And any thoughts on that?
0: Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it, it it doesn't stop. And this goes back to what I was telling you about about listening to people, making people feel listened to. Right? And you don't and I didn't need you to pat me on the bottom and tell me I'm special. Like I don't need that. But what I did need for you to do is say I'm glad you're not dead. And that's a very basic level of human connection, you know, like, I'm, I'm thankful you're alive, you yeah. know, and, um, and, you know, we talk about relationships, like I have, the thing I miss most about SWAT, and I joked around when, like, when I left, and this is a very emotional process for me too, is that I told him, I, I won't miss the circus, but I'll miss the clowns, you know, <laughs> um, and and that's it. And and I my last day at SWAT was a training day. And I and I stood up and I cried. I'm, and I'm a kind of a crier. And I cried and I and I said, you know, I love you guys. And one of the things that I've learned in in, in adulthood is that uh, it's okay to tell your male friends that you love them. You know, but like, holy goodness, some people aren't ready for that. You know, and I've had friends like like that I've known for years where I've said, dude, I, I love you, man. I'm glad. You know, I'm thankful for our friendship. And more more often than not, people are kind of like, huh I love you too, man. You know, <laughs> but but what I've learned is that if you practice that, people crave it, and they reciprocate. You know, and they feel the same way. And if you're vulnerable in that moment, that's very that's very powerful. That's a very powerful thing to do. And you don't have to tell your coworkers I love you, but you have to show it. You know, or, I care about you, but you don't have to. You know, you go around telling your coworkers you love them. That might lead to some HR problems. But mm-hmm. but. You show them by the way you act and show them by the way you treat them and show them by the way that you care about their well-being, you know?
1: Yeah, I, I remember getting caught off guard because that's not quite as common in the in the finance space, you know, where I'm spending all day trying to find another real estate building to buy so we can give our investors these quarterly checks, right? And it's a guy, you know, from the most elite level of Army Special Operations, you can guess what unit that is. And, and he's like, love you, brother. <laughs> and you're like... I wasn't expecting that, you know, but like, what's funny is after repetitions and like other guys in that community, you know, that whether they fall into at Child Rescue or work for us at our consulting firm, you know, it's like, yeah, it does matter. And you do grow to like really like it. And you're like, I don't know, feeling connected to people you'd like to feel connected to. I mean, Warren Buffett says that he thinks the number one measure of success is that when you get older in life, if the people that you love still love you. This is the, you know, at times the richest man in the world. He thinks that the number one, the number one major measure of success is do the people that you love, love you back. That's an interesting statement, right?
0: Yeah, for sure. For sure. But you have to get there. You know, you don't just wake up one day, you know, doing that. You're talking about <laughs> what it's like, what is, what is my process look like? Yeah. My wife, my wife is like a fanatical yoga person, fanatical yoga person. Okay. And it, It's funny because I, like I'm kind of the breadwinner and she's like the, like the, the domestic and the domestic engineer. Oh okay. you know, yeah. And, and my friends are like, well, what are your, what's your wife do? And I said, all the yoga. She does all the yoga, but she's, you know, she's very, very like high, 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 emotional IQ. Right. Okay. And she's like, you got, you, you have to start journaling. You have to start journaling. And I was like, Oh my God, that's going to be so painful. But you know, but I tell you what, you wake up in the morning, you spend your first 15 minutes of your day journaling. And the things that I would journal about, like for, for months, every day I would write, be patient today, be patient today, be patient today. Mostly is my kids because I, I don't want to, you know, do any damage to our relationship, but be patient today. And I find myself in these moments, like when you, ah, that, that space between emotion and response. Viktor Frankl in, in Man's Search for Meaning talks about that space between emotion and response and mastering that, that, and that or I'm sorry, stimulus and response, mastering that, that space. And That takes so much effort. But if you can live in that space, that just moment between when something happens and how you respond to it, being patient in that moment, that goes such a long way. Such a long way.
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Right, Right before this, I just did an interview with this guy, 26 years in the CIA, deep in director of operations, you know, human stuff, mostly in the Middle East and then also going up against the Russians, right? And uh, really hairy stuff, a lot of JSOC work and, you know, kind of like this, the crazy stuff from the movies kind of guy, right? And it's interesting how many of the same things you guys have said to each compared to each other, like an hour apart. He talked all about listening. He talked about journaling. He, like it's, it's funny. I guess it's like one of my favorite things about the show is, I mean, I think in the years you and I have talked, these are, these are not – I'm not surprised that this comes out of your mouth because, of, because I know you. But it is fun to like have you guys back to back saying almost the same things from like him in the Middle East, people trying to kill his source. You're you're in America as a police officer, which has a lot of similarities and a lot of differences. But like seeing those principles show up repeatedly, it's not like you guys are reading a book. Like you're – I'm asking you like what are the most meaningful principles in your life and you're saying so many of the exact same things. It's like very confirming to, to hear at the other end, you know?
0: Yeah, there's a process, you know, and, and I, you know, I'm not unique in this way and I, and I, I would be silly to think that I, I mastered this on my own. But, you know, you, you cast about the world looking for, for examples, for role models and, and kind of following or trying to, to, to see some of the paths that people have, have went before you, you know. And I tell my son, I said, like, look for your role models, man. Look at people that, that act the way that you want to be and use that as a template and tailor that to your tastes. And at least that, let, that lets you get a toehold in whatever space that you're trying to navigate. And and the journaling thing was, because I knew a lot of people do it, and I knew, I'm like, oh, man, if I open that the hatch on that, it's going to be a deep hole. And uh, yeah, but so far, so good, you know? And part of it is just, with that process, the journaling process is just just being free-flowing, just whatever comes to mind. Like, you don't have to have structure or, you know, a sequence, just going with with what you're feeling in the moment. And I, I, I'm kind of, you know, I do like what I want the day to bring. What do I want? To, what do I want out of this day? That's always a common thing in the morning too. What I want out of this day. And then three things I'm grateful for gratitude.
1: Dude, I love it. I've been doing a little bit of like sporadic weekly journaling on Sundays, but it makes me want to do it more. I, I love your, your three things you're grateful for. Like gratitude is like a friggin' wonder drug. <laughs> you know?
0: Oh, and it shapes your worldview. And when you work around cops all the time, oh my goodness, like the emotional energy that goes into shaping your worldview is intense. I mean, we are just a cynical, salty bunch of people. And I, you know, I show up for work and I have eight cops that are just jaded and burnout. And, and and I, day one, I said, I will not, I will not tolerate talking bad about our coworkers. I will not tolerate negativity. We can, we can debrief things and we can be critical of one another for the sake of growth. But if you want to bitch, just to bitch, we'll preface it. I'll say, I'll give you 90 seconds to bitch. And then it's over. Turn the page and we're done because we're not going to cultivate a culture where all we'll we be just sit around and complain. And it's funny because I've had other supervisors come in and work with my crew and like while well, my day's off and I've had multiple people say, dude, your crew is so like, they're great. They're so well adjusted. Like they do their jobs. They don't complain. And it makes me feel like a proud dad. You know, I'm like, oh, well, maybe they're listening. You know? <laughs> so. Too funny. But, you know, it's funny. I was, I'll tell you one more story. I was driving the other day, and actually I was driving to the skydiving, the drop zone, and this guy in this big jacked up Ford truck is just flying through traffic, just zipping it and out, and he cuts me off, and he cuts other people off. And I, my first, my first, you know, emotional response was like, what a jerk. What an a-hole, you know? And I don't know where it came from. I attribute it to my wife, but my second response was, You know, maybe he's late for a job interview and he has to make it. And my third response was, well, I hope he makes it. I hope he gets the job. (laughs) And I was like, whoa, where'd that come from? You know, but it was like this just moment of like kind of peace and just like, well, you know, hey, let's give the guy the benefit of the doubt is maybe he's going somewhere important. And I don't know, but hopefully he makes it there. Yeah, I love it. And just shaping your worldview, man, it's it's just, you got to put work into it.
1: Yeah. Now, we should have had you on the show earlier. I know we're out of time, but we're going to have to have you back now.
0: Yeah, no, this was fun, man. This was fun. I always enjoy talking to you. Our conversations that we had back in the Tri-Cities when we first met, you know, it stuck with me. So I always enjoy talking to you.
1: I love it. Well, listen, people, if you want to connect with Chris from his consulting firm, Valor RG, Valor Resource Group, ValorRG.com. Uh, what, LinkedIn or where else should they be trying to reach out to you?
0: Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn, social media. Facebook's a little bit more cryptic because it's just my, my job. But if you go to Valor, you can – there's a contact me button there and you can email me or meet up there. and We'll do what you
1: need. Okay. Love it, man. Thanks for doing this.
0: Yeah, but thanks. It's fun.
1: Okay.